All right. Well, good morning. So uh, I lucked out and was able to find myself a copy of Shuangshu, which uh, essentially means, uh, well, it's not per se maybe a specific author, but let me speak on the work itself and or the author. And the reason why I'm reading this today and why it's becoming a podcast. So, a little background on Chuangzu. We're looking at about 200 BC, uh, contemporary to Lao Tzu and Confucius, Mencius. Uh, but, uh, forgetting where his background may be from uh, uh, Sun or maybe even a descendant of the Shang dynasty. But, uh, whatever it may be, without explaining why, it's, uh, it's its skepticism and the mystical detachment that desert, uh, differs so radically from Confucianism. The, basic, uh, the basically optimistic and strongly politically minded philosophy which developed in the Chu lineage, states of Lu and Chu. So, as I said, it's, it's how different uh, Confucianism to uh, this philosophy of Chuang Tzu, or Master Zhuang, uh, or the group of minds that produced this philosophy. Now, what is the central, se- central theme of this work, uh, Chuang Tzu? Uh, it may be summed up in a single word, as this author says, freedom. And he says, essentially, all the philosophers of ancient China addressed themselves to the same problem. How is man to live in a world dominated by chaos, suffering, and absurdity? Nearly all of them answered with some concrete plan of action designed to reform the individual, to reform society, and eventually to free the world from its ills. The proposals put forth by the Confucians, the Moists, and the Legalists, uh, to name some of the principal schools of philosophy, were all, uh, they're all different, but all are based upon the same kind of common-sense approach to the problem. They all seek for a concrete social, political, and ethical reform uh, to solve the problem. Whereas Chang Zhu, uh, his answer, uh, the answer uh, of one of the branches of Taoist uh, schools, is radically different from these and is grounded upon a wholly different type of thinking. It's the answer of a mystic, hmm, and in attempting to describe it here in a clear and concise language, I shall undoubt it. So he goes on to say he's going to have a hard time explaining. What is it he's trying to explain? He's trying to explain um, the philosophy, right? And so he goes on and uses uh, an example. And what does he mean? So he talks about the Taoist sage Lao Tzu. And somebody had come to the sage uh, for some guidance. And the response from uh, the master, Master Lao, was um, the crowd of people that you came with. And what did he mean by that? He meant the baggage of conventional values that man must, first of all, discard before he can be free. So Chuan Zhu, Master Chuan, saw the same human sufferings that Confucius, Mozu, and Mencius saw. He saw the man-made ills of war, poverty, and injustice. He saw the natural ills of disease and death, but he believed that they were ills only because man recognized them as such. If man would once forsake his habit of labeling things good or bad, desirable or undesirable, 
than the man-made ills, which are the product of man's purposeful and value-ridden actions, would disappear, and the natural ills that remain would no longer be seen as ills, but as an inevitable part of the course of life. Thus, in Chuang Tzu's eyes, man is the author of his own suffering and bondage, and all his fears spring from the web of values created by himself alone. So he goes on, and they talk about how this is uh, difficult for them to understand, right? Um, and so he used a couple examples uh, and a couple of um, practices to try to explain this, right? Most of the philosophies in ancient China uh, that were addressed to the political or intellectual elite, uh, whereas he tried to address the spiritual elite. It was difficult, the task may be, uh, he employs every resource of rhetoric in his efforts to awaken the reader to the essential meaninglessness of conventional values, free him from their bondage. One device he uses, to great effect, is the pointed or paradoxical anecdote, the non sequitur, commonly used today, or apparently nonsensical remark that jolts the mind into awareness of a truth outside the pale of ordinary logic a device familiar to the Western readers of Chinese and Japanese Zen literature. Uh, speaking of koans, right? But keep in mind, this work was written a good three, four hundred years before Buddhism even entered uh, China, and arguably eight, nine hundred years before uh, the philosophy that eventually developed into what we would consider Chan or Zen. Um, the emptiness, uh, arguably out of the Nalanda University, Yogacara, Chitta, Matra, uh, which developed into the Tantric schools in Tibet, Shunyatra doctrine. Um, Wu Wei is what we're actually going to move on to here, is what they're talking about. Uh, and I argue it is interesting how these philosophies coalesce, not dissimilar to the ancient Vedic. So I shall go on. The other device most commonly used in his writings, is the pseudological discussion or debate that starts out sounding completely rational and sober and ends by reducing language to a gibbering inanity. Now, I enjoy using that device similar. I like to exaggerate to make my point. Um, I would just also like to point out that it's interesting the uh, modern mainland uh, China doesn't embrace this sort of freedom of the person um, but they do use these two strategies, um, both of the paradoxical anecdote um, and the pseudological discussion. So these two devices will be found in their purest form in the first two sections of this work, Master Shuang, or the Shuangzhu, which together constitute one of the fiercest and most dazzling assaults ever made not only upon man's conventional system of values, but upon his conventional concepts of time, space, reality, and causation as well. And there you go again. I argue, mm, we had some of this discussion, but a continent away at the time. Finally, Chuan Tzu uses throughout his writings that deadliest of weapons against all that is pompous, staid, and holy. Humor. <laughs> I find this hilarious. Most Chinese philosophers enjoy humor sparingly. A wise decision, no doubt, in view of the serious tone they seek to maintain. Some of them seem never to have heard of humor at all. Uh, Xuanzu, on the contrary, makes it the very core of his style. 
he appears to have known that one good laugh would do more than ten pages of harangue to shake the reader's confidence in the validity of his pat assumptions. Jeez, it's funny. I couldn't even pronounce that word uh, the first time I went through it. So in Chuang Tzu's view, the man who has freed himself from conventional standards of judgment can no longer be made to suffer. He refuses to recognize poverty, uh, poverty as any less desirable than affluence, to recognize death as le any less desirable than life. He does not, in any literal sense, withdraw and hide from the world. To do so would show that he, is, he still passed judgment upon the world. He remains within society, but refrains from acting out of the motives that lead ordinary men to struggle for wealth, fame, success, or safety. He maintains a state that Chuang Tzu refers to as Wu Wei, or inaction, eh, meaning by this term not a forced quietude, but a course of action that is not founded upon any purposeful motives or gain or striving, no attachment. No attainment. In such a state, I added those two words, uh, in such a state all human actions become as spontaneous and mindless as those in the natural world. Spontaneous or guided by a principle and unjaded by our own ego, but I see where he's going. Man becomes one with nature, or heaven, uh, as Cheng Su calls it, and merges himself with the Tao, uh, or the way. Uh, the underlying unity that embraces man, nature, and all that is in the universe. Uh, I want you to understand um, how important the uh, the flood uh, didactic is in the Chinese um, um, thinking, right? So here we go again. The Tao, or right, you must find the flow, not insufficient, not excess of nature. This goes back to Chinese prehistory, where um, the Yellow River used to flood every year to the point it would just destroy everything until they found a way to. Um, to control the flow of the water, not too much, not too little, and they were able to uh, to uh, live uh, a much more prosperous life. And arguably, it was uh, that uh, uh, valley I've said before, that valley uh, that was so uh, fertile from all the flooding that became uh, uh, the base, uh, the home base for uh, this uh, civilization that was going to grow out from there. Right, but again, what he's talking about here is the Tao or the Way. Right? And they talk about the flow. And a lot of this does go back, flows from um, this uh, foundation myth of the flood. Right? Uh, the underlying unity that embraces man, nature, and all that is in the universe. Right? This flow, this way of the Tao. So to describe this mindless, purposeless mode of life, Shuang Tzu turns most often to the analogy of the artist or the craftsman. Right? The skilled woodworker, butcher, swimmer does not ponder or uh, ruminate on the course of action he should take. Arguably, kind of like Miyamoto Musashi or uh, Soho, who talks about being in that mindless state, right? Um, so uh, it, it's absolutely. So his skill has become so much a part of him that he merely acts instinctively and spontaneously and without knowing why, achieves success. That's why the Chinese talk about being in the flow state. Why the Japanese will talk about, you know, the Buddha and the Zen state. 
right? It's the exact same idea. It's full awareness and not allowing one's own ego or judgment volition, as commonly discussed in Buddhism, to get in the way. Again, Chang Zhu employs the metaphor of a totally free and purposeless, purposeless journey, using the word you to wander or wandering, to designate the way in which the enlightenment wanders through all of, all of creation, enjoying its delights without ever becoming attached to any part of it. But unlike mystics, Chuang Zhu insists that language is in the end grievously inadequate to describe the true way or the wonderful freedom of the man who has realized his identity with it. Again and again, he cautions that he is giving only a rough or reckless description of these things, and what follows is usually a passage of highly poetic and paradoxically, uh, paradoxical language that, in fact, conveys little more than the essential ineffability of such a state of being. It's absolutely the exact same thing that we tend to see in, in a lot of other philosophies. We talk about Ishvara, or Moksha, that enlightenment or pure awareness state in the Hindu or the Vedic uh, philosophy. Uh, the Jain uh, have a similar philosophy. The Buddhists will talk about jnana, uh, our flow state, uh, your contem contemplative state, or the, the no mind, that wu wei state that's carried into the Chinese where we talk about wu as emptiness, shunyata, um, empty of what they talk about this, 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 um, Lack of causation, right? Nothing is what it appears to be. Nothing is without a connection to everything else. That's the true flow state, right? When you understand that where you end, something else begins, right? That's the yin, that's the yang, that's the flow of the hexagrams, that's the philosophy of the I Ching, that's where it came from, to Confucius and Mencius. Here I go to Chuangzhu, that's the one major uh, differing uh, philosophy within China. And uh, arguably, I think I may have found my full 360 here discussing, um, you know, awareness and residing in that mindfulness. Mindfulness of what? That ego uh, tends to jade not only our experience, but also the decision process leading to endless dissatisfaction of our lot. So this is not a philosophy now in the end. This is simply a truth of the, the nature of existence.